very much for that. Thanks. Very kind of you. Oh, my. We missed you all. We got up uh, early on Sunday morning so we could uh, tune in on Facebook and then we were able to watch the whole service from, from there. It was very early in Hawaii, <laughs> but it was, it was good to be able to join you all and um, looked like Alan kept the false doctrine out while he was here. That's always good. We appreciate that, but it was good getting to see Christian. We got to see his apartment he moved into and help him get some things set up in there, and that was that was fun. Of course, his mom and dad just, you know, it's a good part of vacation, be able to help, help him out, get things like that set up, and we did investigate some falls and, and some uh, hikes, and um, I think one day he took us out to a spot to go see some seals, and he said it's about a mile hike down the road, and it ended up being about three and a half miles down the road. It was... Uh, a little bit further. He said, I think it was the other one I was thinking about. That was, that was a little closer than that. But quite a place out there in, in Hawaii. It, um, we enjoyed some of the trails and some of the places to, to visit. Of course, we got over to Pearl Harbor to check out the, the things that were going on there the day it set up. And we, we did thoroughly enjoy that. We could not see where he worked, but we saw the building. <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, you might have to be shot if you went in there with so we <clears throat> we didn't want to do all that. <laughs> but it was it was good. Now, meal time was a little bit tough. There was a, there was a whole lot of um, Oriental and Korean and Thai and uh, places of that nature, which um, I I don't, I don't like. <laughs> Everybody else enjoyed it. So there was one day we actually went out to, uh, uh, they were going to have, um, go to an Oriental place and they, they went there to get their noodles and the stuff like that. And I said, well, all right, well, there's a barbecue place over there. It was not a barbecue place like you and I know. <laughs> I looked over that menu and I said, there's really nothing I want to eat here. <laughs> but we ordered one thing and, and uh, I wasn't too disappointed. But it was it was good. The first time we got there, we got we ate at a Mexican place, and just a little. I mean, it's just a small. I guess you call it a hole in the wall. And um, we ate there, and doggone, that was good Mexican food. <laughs> and they had good salsa. I said, this is different from any salsa I've ever had. I like it. It's nice and spicy. It's got just enough kick to it. And we got some guacamole, which I did share with everyone else at the table. But um, it was it was good. We uh, we appreciate y'all letting us go, <laughs> and we had we had a wonderful time uh, going over there and doing the doing the things. I think I put some of the pictures up on Facebook. I have other ones beside that. Maybe we'll try and put together. But we did uh, get to go snorkeling, and he had this nice underwater camera that took all kinds of nice underwater pictures. But it'll take a little bit more for me to get them into a place that I can actually put them there for you to to see. But that was. That was fun. Got to do lots of good things. All right. How about if we get into the word here this morning? We're going to be, we promised this story to you. And we're going to, we're going to take a look at this. But I wanted to share this story with you first. There was a pastor who was doing a funeral. And as he was getting ready for the funeral, you know, you get into the, the, into the processional. And the hearse is up in the front. And then the pastor who was doing the, the, doing the funeral, he was behind that. And then everybody else kind of follows. 
And so this pastor's name, his name was David. He was going on there and he's, he's telling the story. And he says, well, it happened that as I was going on over to the, the funeral, I, I needed to use the restroom. And he says, I know that at the funeral itself, you know, you got the graveside. There's no restrooms. There's nothing you can do. So I said, so he, he thought the best thing he could do was along the way, he found a park that had one of those uh, porta potties. And so he decided to veer off and to uh, use the porta potty. And then he just meet everybody else up at the, the funeral because, you know, it takes him a little while to get them all shuffled in and get on over there. So, so he veered on off and, and he uh, did what he had to do. And as he came back out, he found out that the processional did not follow the hearst. It followed him. <laughs> and the entire funeral processional was waiting for him to get done in the porta potty <laughs> before they went on. The moral of that story is you got to be careful what you follow. And sometimes in the area of faith, folks, we follow things just because other people did it. And we end up in the area of presumption because we just followed what other people did. We can't just follow what other people do in the area of faith. We have to make sure that we are in faith and we are doing the things that the Word of God has shown us to do. Just to give you a little review, there are five reasons why we make presumptions. One, I want it to happen. Two, I think it should happen. Three, well, God loves me. Number four, I've worked hard and deserve this. And the last one, I misunderstood what God said. We looked at the verse in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And I cannot in faith pray away what my actions have brought about. We looked at Adam and Eve and the actions that they had. And that brought about some things in their life. They couldn't just pray those away. We saw Abram and Sarai. And their actions brought about certain things, specifically with Hagar. They brought about certain things. They couldn't just pray it away. Israel at Kadesh, when they disobeyed God and didn't go into the promised land, then decided to obey God. There are some things you just can't pray away and your actions have consequences. Well, we're going to take a look at this story. And I, as I usually do, I look back and see when was the last time we looked at this. And actually, when we were in this series, which was a long time ago we started, <laughs> uh, we actually... Uh, Looked over this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this particular passage, but I just want to look at it from the presumption standpoint because we did not look at it uh, so much the last time. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his, his own food, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the, the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore four hundred fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, he went on. Nathan said to, to David, you 
are the man. You are the man. Hmm. Fortunately, David took this rebuke. And of course, the whole part of this story is that David had gone off with Bathsheba. And they had an adulterous affair. That David had seen her on the rooftop. And we don't know all the ins and outs why Bathsheba even agreed or what had gone on with all that. But uh, she came to him and went into the bedchamber. And of course, uh, from that point on that, you know, that things happened and, and a baby came from this. And this is really what we're going to focus on here is the young lad that was born and the way that uh, things were, were prayed about that young, young boy. But some people look at this and they say, well, if, if God wasn't going to let this baby live, why did he allow Bathsheba to have the baby? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God allow Bathsheba to have the baby if the baby can't live? Well, folks, having babies is not up to God. Having babies is up to people. If people do the things that make for babies, then they have babies. If they don't, then they don't have babies. And God isn't up there deciding, well, you ought to have a baby and you ought not to. We've put that on God, but that's not what God has, has done. He told them in the garden, he says, he told them to be, uh, be fruitful and to multiply. That's the command that he gave. And so when they did this thing, it can be that a baby can come from it. And it so happened here. So when you look at situations like people getting raped, when you look at situations where people who really don't, uh, you know, drug addicts, uh, and they have a baby, and that poor baby is born into this situation, and why does God allow that? Well, God didn't allow that. People did. See, we're so, we sometimes presume things about God. Well, why doesn't God stop that? Why doesn't God hinder that? Why doesn't God keep that from happening since it's a bad thing? And that's not the, that's not the case. But they went on off, and they did their thing, and then they had, of course, covered up. And so uh, he brought the husband home, hoping that the husband would uh, do the things that make for babies and that uh, it would be assumed that the baby was his. Well, he wasn't uh, quite playing along with the plan, and so that didn't work out. So then he sent a message home so that he would be killed. And so David uh, had a hand in murder, and now he brought somebody else in it on it as well. And the conspiracy for this just kept on, on going out. And so after a period of time, then he, he waited and then he sent for her. And of course, he married her. But he fell into this. And the review came. I look back on some notes that we had done on this a long time ago. This was uh, probably more than 10 years ago. And I just thought, well, I'll bring these out and just in case you want to write them down. Maybe you don't remember because it, uh, it was a long time ago. The stages of correction. Now, I didn't write this in your outline. If you want to write it down, you can. You don't have to. But uh, there's a little bit of space there. Not enough. <laughs> but there's a little bit of space there. I was running out on space for the outline. Couldn't uh, put too many things in. Here's the, the first stage. What I am ready to change and what I am hearing. There are some things that we need to repent of, but we're ready to make that change. We're ready to do it. And when it gets pointed out, let's make that change. Let's go ahead and get rid of that thing. Here's the second one. What I'm supposed to change, but I'm slow in obeying. 
How many of y'all know there's some things that you're supposed to change and you're ready for it and other stuff you're supposed to change and well, I know I should do this, but I'm not really ready to do it. Here's the third. What should be changed, but I have resisted hearing. No, I'm not going to do that. I like that in my life. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get rid of that. I, I know uh, it's probably wrong, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Here's the fourth one. What I am unwilling to change, what I have decided not to hear. I'm not going to do that. And no matter how many times God may show us that, we're not, we're not going to do it. Mm-mm. It might be wrong. You can put a, an example of this in, say, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees went out and plotted murder. Is murder wrong? Do they know that murder is wrong? Yet they plotted a murder against Jesus. And if anyone came to them and said, that's wrong, what would they do? They would be very hard against that, very unwilling to change. And they would, of course, have their, their reasons. But uh, they decided not to hear anything about that. There are four sources of correction. First off is his word. Secondly, my spirit, the voice of my own spirit. Third, his spirit. And fourth, his servants, the servants of God. Four sources of correction. His word, your spirit, his spirit, and his servants. Those voices of correction will come from these particular sources. And you can decide which one you want to listen to. The easiest one to do is to listen to the word. When the word correction, just do it. If not, the real close to that is when the voice of your spirit comes up. Just go ahead and listen to that. And you'll save yourself a whole lot of problems if you work in those first two areas. If you get to the point where his spirit is speaking to you, that's because you, re- you resisted his word and you resisted the voice of your own spirit. You got some resistance going on there. But if you get to the point of his servants, sometimes we get embarrassed. Sometimes we don't like who it is. Or how it is that they, they did it. We get upset with that. But anyway, let's go on with this. Then Nathan said to David, You're the, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Jeriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from, my own, from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did this, for you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Now, those questions about this, and of course, we've told you before, the Old Testament viewpoint, the, the uh, Israelite viewpoint, is that if God does not prevent something, he did it. That's their way of looking at things. So you have to make sure you remember that in the Old Testament. It's not necessarily saying that God struck the child. It's saying that uh, their viewpoint is if God didn't stop it, then God did it. 
So don't try and get into all the doctrine why did God kill the child? We don't necessarily have to go into that direction. We know who God is. But he, God's even saying, you open the door for this and now the child will surely die. So that's the word we have from God. But look at this, what he said to him. He said, if that had been too little. He looked at all the stuff that he gave him. He said, if that had been too little, I would have given you more. But he said, the sword shall not depart from your house. You're going to have this in there. That's because of the way that he operated. It's because of what he had, had done here with the, with the sword and how he had the sword of a foreign nation come in and kill someone that he wanted to get out of the way. Two times, Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife, not his widow. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But fortunately... David responds correctly here. And he says, I have sinned. I have sinned. Now God warns that David has given occasion to the enemies. By the action or by the sin that he did, sin has opened the door, basically. The child shall die. It's a judgment by God. Is, is it a judgment of God or the result of sin? Well, no, it's the result of sin. It's not a judgment by God. It's not God saying, you did a bad thing, so therefore I'm going to do this. That's not how God does things. He doesn't punish other people for your sins. Verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me for the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now we look at this passage and we see that the word of the Lord came to David and said the child's going to die. That's what God said. Can you have faith that the child is going to live if God says the child is going to die? You can't do it. Because God said, the words from God's mouth are, the child shall die. But David still went in and, and said, perhaps I can change God's mind. And so he went and fasted and he prayed and he sought to change the Lord's mind because he saw it as a decision by God. That's what, that was his viewpoint on this thing. But, God, but apparently God didn't change his mind according to David or basically the, the door that was opened by David couldn't be closed and so the child died. Now look at this too, just as a side note. Who was the next child that was born to Bathsheba? Who became king? What would have been the fate of the first son? 
He probably would have been king. What would that have done? If you had a king who was born out of wedlock in an adulterous relationship, would that have been a bad thing for the... Could well have been. Whatever it was, God didn't kill the child. And say, you're, you're in my way, I need to get rid of you. That's not our God. Now, a lot of people would be, a, we'd be praying for this in a presumptive way. And they would be going to God and said, but God, I repented. I repented and I know that you forgave me. And I thank you for forgiving me. And we would go on with, with things like that. But David went before God and he knows I can't have faith for this because God said the child shall die. But he went in and fasted and he prayed because he saw this. This is his fault. This is his wrong. But once he saw the child was dead, he got up, washed himself, ate, People were surprised. But you see, a lot of Christians, when we get it in our mind, we make a presumption that God should do a thing a certain way. And if it doesn't do it, we get upset. And we don't go into the house of God and praise God. We stay away from the house of God and we get mad. Why didn't God bring this about? Why didn't God do this? Because we made a presumption that God should have done certain things. I put this in your outline for you. If God's word doesn't give you assurance, we are wrong to get our hopes high. You have got to have the assurance that comes from the word. So we can learn from David's approach. If you have something that is, it, it, it's tough for you. To, it's hard for me to accept not having this. It's hard for me to accept not moving in this direction. Well, you can go to prayer like David did. As long as you come out of it like David did. Don't go into prayer like David didn't come out like something else. David went into prayer and said, perhaps I can change God's mind. And he basically threw himself in the mercy of God that if there was a way, God would bring it about. And apparently there wasn't a way and it didn't change. So David got up. I can't convince God now. The child's dead. Of course, the famous thing that he said, I will go to him, but he will not come to me. Of course, they would get that whole doctrine of that infants go to heaven out of that. And I don't say that doctrine is wrong. I don't say that because I believe that infants don't go to heaven. I, I have no reason at all to doubt the age of accountability. And that until such, uh, such as his, um, reaches that age, that they would go to heaven. But understand, that's what you get that from. That's the verse that it, that it comes from. That perhaps David knew something about God there that we didn't know. So, it says that David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Can you imagine his wife here? She gets involved in an adulterous relationship, has the embarrassment of being pregnant through that. Then her, her husband dies. She loses the house she was called home for all that time. She's now in another house with a bunch of other women. So she lost her husband, lost her house, lost what she saw as her future, and then has lost her son. Can you imagine going through all that? That was a tough thing for Bathsheba too, not just for David. Now here's some presumptive approaches that we sometimes do with this. First, God loves me and has forgiven me. Sometimes some of us Christians would go after this kind of a prayer situation and say, well, God loves me and because he loves me and because he has forgiven me, I'll get what I need. 
And so they go in there and they pray in faith, believing. I'm believing that this is going to happen. Well, how about this one? God loves the child and won't hold him accountable. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't God love that child? Is God going to hold that child accountable for David's sin? No. So it makes sense, except for the fact that God said, the child shall die. Hmm. Here's another one. God is greater than my sin. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? God is greater. I believe God is greater than my sin. So I'm going to stand in faith and believe that this is going to happen. How about this one? God has promised me blessings, not cursings. I'm not going to accept this curse that this child is going to die, for I am blessed and I walk in the blessings of God. We can go on with a confession like that. But what did God say? The child shall die. See, we can come up with all these great ideas, but it doesn't take us away from what God said. Now, just to clarify this some more, I want to go over to another story in Matthew chapter 17. This is a really easy one to make presumptions off of. No one in this story is making a presumption. But it is really easy to take this story and make one. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened his mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. How many of you ever caught fish and found money? Bruce likes to fish. He puts up some things on Facebook every now and then about uh, having a good old day going out there and go fishing. And um, how many times have you caught fish with money in? Never. Never caught one with money. And that's something. Now, it's no surprise that I have not caught a fish with money in it because I have not gone fishing all that very often. But, uh, you know, some people, they, they, do like to, they do like to fish. Some people, it's the, they're good at fishing. I imagine that Peter is one of those who is good at fishing. I am not good at fishing. I think I told you the story before when we were at camp, summer camp, when I was a kid growing up. And um, we had a counselor there. He was the best fisherman I ever saw. No, I haven't seen you fish, Brother Bruce, so I'm not putting you in that category. If I see him fish, I might have to, you know, update that. But I, I haven't seen everybody fish. I'm talking about the people that I saw fish. This guy was good. We used to fish for pickerel. Have you ever heard of pickerel? And they got little sharp teeth. So you had to use these little uh, steel leaders so that they wouldn't snap the line. And, and we, would, we would fish for those. And so this guy was, uh, he's just a good fisherman. We had a rule at this camp, no fishing off the dock. I don't know why, but they didn't want anybody fishing off the dock. So no fishing off the dock. So this, he was a counselor. And so he was showing one of the young ladies how to fish, how to cast out and reel it in. He's just being a counselor. Cast it out, reel it in. This is how you do it. You go like this, you go like this. And, you, and so as he's reeling it in, he catches a pickerel. 
latches onto the thing. Because he just has a knack for it. He just has a little extra movement so that you can do, because we did lures over there, we didn't do the fresh bait, and made it look alive, and, and this fish saw something alive, and when he reeled it in, it ended up being the largest fish ever caught in the pond or lake or whatever the thing it was that we were, we were at. Largest one. Just fishing off the dock, just showing somebody how to fish. And so we were, I was actually in the boat with him one time. We were out there and fishing. And this was a man-made lake, so there's a lot of uh, logs and, and things like that. And so you try to get around a log to fish because little fish are around logs and big fish like little fish. So we were over there by one of the logs and he just was looking around there. And this is, I still remember his words. I can remember this like it happened yesterday. He said, uh, that looks like a good spot for a fish. And so he takes his line and he casts it right out there and he starts pulling the thing on in and he catches the most itty bitty pickerel I had ever seen. It's only about this big. He's very disappointed at catching the pickerel that was only that big. And he says, oh, I'm not even going to bother taking this thing off. And he didn't. He left the thing on the lure and he cast the whole thing, lure and fish right back into the same spot he was at and he starts pulling it again and a bigger pickerel latches hold of the literal pickerel and he reels them both in. <laughs> I've never seen anybody be able to fish like this guy could fish. He could fish. It just seemed like at will, he could just throw it out there and catch something. Now, I don't know if Peter was in that category or not. Oh, I, I know that, fish, that, that Peter was a fisherman. It seemed like most of the time we interact with him fishing, it's with nets. Fishing with nets is different than fishing with a hook. Throwing a hook out there and reeling the thing on in. But that's what the Lord told him to do. He said, go out there. And it's kind of interesting to, to note this too, that he says the first fish. The first fish, not the second or the third. So I'm wondering, does Peter then go on and catch more fish beside the one? Or is the first fish the only fish? <laughs> Don't know, but he says the first fish. So the first fish, he uh, throws out there, gets the hook out there. And pulls it on in. It doesn't talk about any kind of bait being on the hook. Just the hook. I kind of assumed that there was probably some bait on the hook. But we're, I'm reading into the scripture for that. He could have just taken a hook. And maybe Jesus said just put a hook out there. And the right fish is going to come along. And going to bite that hook. Now I ask a couple of questions when I read this story. First off. Why is Peter the only one approached? How many disciples are there? There are 12 disciples. Who's approached? Peter. And who is Peter asked about? Jesus. Does Jesus pay the temple tax? Why is only Peter approached? And why are they only asking about Jesus? Doesn't that seem kind of funny to you? Wouldn't you want to get the whole... I mean, if you want to get temple tax, why not get them all? Why not get all 12 of them? Why is it you're just picking on Peter and on, and on Jesus? Well, some time ago, I was reading... God just like to read stuff. And I was just reading stuff and came upon a, uh, an article that somebody had written on the age of the disciples. And the article was... How many of you think of the age of the disciples? You know, somewhere in like maybe their mid-20s, early 30s. Somewhere around like that. Yeah, they probably weren't. They probably were teenagers. And I read the article and looked at the reasons why. And I said, well, that makes total sense. 
Because how old was Jesus when he started off his ministry? He was 30 years old. What did the disciples call him? Master. Would you call someone your own age master? Or would you call someone that you consider to be a senior? All right, it's food for thought. Here's the other thing. You only pay a temple tax when you hit a certain age. That age, I believe, is around 18. Is it possible that the only disciple who was over the age of 18 is Peter? I don't know. Here's the third thing. What town are we in? We are in Capernaum. Whose hometown is Capernaum? It is Jesus' hometown. Who else lives around here? Peter. Is there any significance to the fact that these two call this place home, why they're approached there, and that maybe some of the others didn't quite call it home? Don't know the answers to that one, but it's very interesting that Peter is the one who's approached. They didn't want to approach Jesus. But the age of the disciples is probably younger than most of us have ever thought. Now, they were old enough to be working in a business. And Peter may have been one of the older ones. He was actually one that was married, had a mother-in-law. We know that. But you can marry pretty young. You can marry 13, 14. You can be married. But apparently the temple tax was a little bit later on that you, that you paid that. And perhaps it had something to do with the hometown while they were, they were doing this. So, Peter may have been a little bit younger than we may have, have first thought. But Jesus establishes the facts. He first says, uh, the kings of the earth. You know, just a normal thing. Who, who do the kings of the earth get taxes from? Do they get it from their sons? And they said, well, no. Did he get it from strangers? Peter says, yeah, from strangers. So he says, so the sons are free. In other words, by the declaration of the policies of man, the sons are free of the tax. And who did he see himself as? The son of God. And who did he call the disciples? He wants us all to be sons of God. So the sons are free, which basically means Peter and Jesus don't have to pay the tax according to God's viewpoint, but not man's viewpoint. So he first establishes with Peter, we don't really have to pay this tax because <laughs> we're free. We're sons. We understand that. But uh, that's Jesus' point of view. Remember when Peter was first asked, does your master pay the temple tax? What's he say? Yes. Sure he does. Because we're supposed to. <laughs> Surely he did. Huh. Didn't ask Peter whether he paid it, did he? He asked Peter if Jesus paid it. It could be this is the first year that Peter is eligible to pay the temple tax. That's why Jesus says, go pay it for you and me. Don't know. But anyway, we'll get the first fish. Now, why was the money not taken out of the treasury that Jesus had? 
or any salary that Jesus might get. Why not just take the money out of there? I mean, does Jesus get money to spend? Well, he has clothes. I assume he bought them. He uh, took an apartment. I'm sure he paid rent for that. If he didn't purchase it outright, he paid rent for it. Then he had to furnish the apartment, didn't he? So if you furnish the apartment, now you got to buy stuff for, for that. Uh, there's probably other things. I mean, what if you wanted to go out to, to lunch? What are you going to do? You've you got, you got to buy food. you got to buy... Go to a restaurant and buy a, buy a meal, whatever it was, was going to be. So Jesus had expenses. Personal expenses apart from the ministry. Just personal expenses. And so he had to get some money that was uh, put towards those things. So why not just treat it like, like that? Why not just pay the temple tax out of those things? How many of you think that would be a good way to do it? I mean, if you have to pay the tax, you want to pay the tax, why don't you go out there and, and use the money that you got? Remember, the, the Magi brought him all kinds of money. And as far as we know, that helped finance the ministry in a, in a lot of ways. So he has money. He has a treasury. He has so much in there, you know, somebody can be stealing out of it and nobody know about it. So why not just take the money from there? Well, first off, Jesus established that they were free from the tax. So he says, because I'm free from this, I'm not paying for it out of my stuff. <laughs> I guess that's what he's saying. Because otherwise, why do you have to go to the, to the event of a miracle to bring about the money? He says, we're not eligible to have to, have to pay that because we're sons. So I'll tell you what, Peter. You go and do this. You go out there and catch a fish. First one you catch, going to have some money in it. You go ahead and pay the tax for me and, and for you. Now, Peter does not say, why don't you go get the fish? <laughs> Peter didn't do that. <laughs> Peter went out and got the fish. Put the hook out there. Got the fish. Now, we can look at this and we can get an idea from this because this is what happened. That when we have a bill, let's go fishing. Right? <laughs> you can get this idea. I have a bill. I don't have the money for it. I don't want to use the money I have for it. I need to pay this bill. I'm going fishing. Because that's what Jesus did. And the first fish I catch is going to have some money in it. <laughs> I don't know if anybody would admit it. But I wonder if we ever did a poll of all the Christians around. If anyone would have tried such a thing. I don't know. Maybe we try and do other things. I'm going to go out to the mail and the first envelope I open up. I'm going to go to the library and the first book. We can go all kinds of things that we can just decide where we're going to get this, this money from. But here's the thing. It worked for Jesus. Now, why did it work for Jesus? And if there's been other people, I'm sure no one in this room, but you know, other people around who went out there fishing for money. Why didn't it work for them? 
why we've never heard testimonies of people that have caught fish with money inside. Because I'll tell you what, if I caught a fish and I had money inside, I'd be telling people. First off, I'd be excited that I caught a fish. That'd be pretty exciting. And secondly, I'd be excited that he was big enough to have money in his mouth. Because that had to be a certain size fish in order to have the, the money in the mouth. So that'd be exciting. And then, there's the money in the mouth thing. That's all. That's always good. Of course, we'd be looking at pennies and dimes, quarters. What's that? Gold bar. That's, that's one big fish right there. <laughs> that is a big fish. Mm. But see, this is not an example for us to follow. We are never commanded to follow in this example. We never have another instance where anyone followed in this example or ever did this. All that we know is that Jesus told Peter to do it. Now, according to Jesus' words, if he says something, where did he hear it from? He heard it from the Father. Which means if he heard it from the Father, he could speak it and have faith with it, right? Now, I'll put this in your outline for you. To have faith, the word or to have faith in the word or promise needs to be spoken to you. To have faith, the word or the promise needs to be spoken to. You've got to hear that promise. It needs to come to you. That promise needs to be said specifically to you. Now, the word of God is general. Most of it is written to all of us. Some of it is written for specific things. And we must be be careful about that. Sometimes we want to go out and we want to say, well, God's word to to Abraham and to Sarah about having a baby. I am going to take that word and I'm going to use it for my life because I want to have a baby. We've got to be careful about that. That's not necessarily the way that we can that we can go. That was a specific word for Abraham and Sarah for a baby for their life. Now, does God want you to have babies? Married? Want to have a family? Sure, it's a good thing. I can say that, that God would certainly want you to have babies and to raise a family. That would be the desire of God. But you've got to get the Word of God for you, not the Word of God for Sarah. You've got to get the Word of God for you. Who in the Word of God, who in the Bible ever claimed the promise that Sarah had for themselves? If we have no examples of anyone in the Word of God claiming Sarah's promise for themselves, how come we could be out there and doing it? That would be in the area of presumption. I am presuming that the word that was given to Sarah will work in my life. Why? Because I like that word. Because I want that in my life. Because I think I deserve that in my life. I think I've earned it. Been faithful to God. Been doing all kinds of things. But we, we can't do that. Just because we have a story of somebody spitting on the ground and making clay doesn't mean you go around spitting on the ground making clay and causing blind people to see. You've got to hear that specific word from God. These are things that we need to, to make sure that we do. Otherwise, we get in the area of presumption and presumption is not faith. People make it look like it's faith, but it's not faith. I mean, you can have people go around and say, 
I'm believing God, I'm going to be married. Because God wants me to have a wife, God wants me to have a helpmate, God wants me to have a husband, whatever it might be. God wants me to have, so I am believing God, and I am speaking that right now, I am going to be married, and you're the most obnoxious person in the world. You are so rude, your family doesn't like to be around you. You are so rude that people pay you money to stay away from work. That's how rude you are. Now, you think you're going to be that rude that people are going to want to get married to you? No, that's where your actions are going to have some results. Now, let's take a look at your own situation. Put this in your outline for you. Don't hope for something the Word does not promise. This is something the enemy loves to get you to do. Hope for something the Word does not promise to you. Because if he can get you to hope for something not promised, then he knows that that faith action that you're trying to do will generate nothing but discouragement. And he can undermine the real thing by getting you off on these other other spots. And it'll start getting you to drop lines in the water to catch fish to pay a bill. There are two ways God will build faith. First, He will show you in the Word. Two ways God will build faith. First, He will show you in the Word. That's the first way that God is going to build faith. In the Word of God, you're going to be reading and you're going to be receiving and you're going to have faith for it. And it'll be good. Here's the second way. He will speak to you a word. And of course, we know this as the Lagos and the Rhema. Lagos is the written word. Rhema is the spoken word. He will show you in the word or he will speak to you a word. Now, if he speaks to you a word, that word is for you. Not for someone else. It is for you. If God speaks to someone else a word, it's not a word for you. It's for them. Don't use someone else's word. Oh, I like that word. Yeah. That's what God told you? I'm, I'm claiming that for myself. You ever heard anybody say that? I'm claiming that word for myself. You can't claim it for yourself because it wasn't spoken to you. You got to get the word that is spoken to you. That's important. Otherwise, you're going to get an area of presumption. Now, a word is not the word. A word is not the word. If you get a word from God, it is not the word of God. The word of God is for all. A word is for you. I don't know if I left this in your outline or not, but it's still in mind. Like I said, I took some things out. If you act in line with what God revealed to another... Without it becoming revelation to you, you have set yourself up to walk in presumption. You have set yourself up to walk in presumption. You can't do it. If you act in line with what God revealed to another, without it becoming revelation to you. You see, what God revealed to someone else could become revelation to you. It could. 
I'm not saying just because somebody else got it, you will never will. But it has to come in as revelation. And if it comes in as revelation, then it's yours. Otherwise, you're just going to walk in presumption. Don't expect people to act on your revelation until it becomes their revelation. Now, what I mean by that is this. We all know that everyone should mind their own business. But not everybody does. How many of you know there's people who mind your business instead of theirs? And they're getting words from God for you. Have you ever had someone get a word from God for you? Now, I'm not saying it never happens. But Brother Hagin used to always, always tell us that if someone has a word of God for you, make sure it bears witness with you on the inside. Always just tell us that. Just because somebody has a word of God for you doesn't mean it came from God. You got to make sure that it bears witness. If it doesn't bear witness, as he would say, uh, he just put it on the shelf. Just kind of leave it there on the shelf and, uh, and wait. Because just because someone got a word of God for you does not mean it came from God. And don't do it. Don't expect people to act on your revelation until it becomes their revelation. I have had people in my life, I'm sure that you have had it too, who have gotten a revelation about me and have expected me to obey it without me getting the revelation. This is a huge lesson for y'all to learn. I, I hope you do it. You gotta, you gotta learn this. I don't care who comes up to you and gives you the revelation. Until it is revelation to you, do not do it. And anyone, anyone who expects you to obey their revelation for your life without you having revelation is operating in a false area. I will not call them an outright false teacher. But I would like to. <laughs> I, would, I would like to. I'm not going to go that far with it. But my personal feelings on that are pretty strong. As you can probably tell. If I ever. Come upon you. With a revelation from God. And insist. That you obey it. But you have not understood it or had revelation. You can kick me out. You should. Because it's wrong. Can't do it. Brother Hagen used to tell us this. Way back when I was in school. Now I'm not even talking about the seminars I went to. Way back when I was in school. I remember sitting there and he would say, and I I don't remember the exact teachers that he would say, I'm just going to throw, he threw three of them out there to big names. He would say, if Brother Fred Price, if Brother Ed Dufresne, and if Brother Ken Copeland all came to me at different times with the exact same word from God, I still would not do it until it was revealed to me. That's feeling something pretty strong. 
I have heard people who look down upon another Christian because they are not doing, they are not obeying what they got in their spirit for them. Well, I was praying for you. And while I was praying for you, this came up in my spirit. It was really strong. I think you really ought to listen to it. Do not listen to that. In fact, folks, just to, just to be real straight with you, I didn't say honest. I said straight. <laughs> I don't say that. I'm always intending to be honest with you. I'm meaning, I'm meaning to be straight with you right now. Anyone who expects me, and you should do this for you, to obey the word they got for them without me having revelation is a tool of Satan to distract me and get me to go in a wrong direction. Anyone who would do it. Because you see, a real genuine servant of God would understand you need to get this revelation. Now you think back to all the all the years we've been here. This has been been something that we have been operating on on a regular basis. We would have people who would give words. I would go up to them afterwards. Did that word bear witness with you? Did that word agree with you? Some of you sitting here, I've approached about that. You've gotten the word, and I've approached you. Did that bear witness with you? Some of you, if I asked you to raise your hand, you probably raise your hand and say, "Yeah, you asked me about that." Because it's important. If it doesn't bear witness on the inside, it's not something you should do. And here's why. I don't think I've ever taught this aspect of it, but we're going to teach it here for you today. Of these things, which has the greatest impact on our spiritual growth and walk in faith? I gave you just five. I'm only listing five. I could put more things on this list. I just put five things on this list. Here they are. Love faithfulness, gentleness, revelation, and knowledge. Of those things, which one do you think deserves the number one ranking? And they are all ranked. I've ranked them right here. I am not embarrassed about having ranked them. There are some things in the Word of God that are more important than others. About time we all realize that too. (laughs) The number one thing is love. All right, I saw that. That's good. Love. Because the Word of God is real clear about this. These three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. love. And we know that if we obey the commandment of love, we obey all the commandments. What can be greater than love? Absolutely nothing. That's the greatest thing. You want to rank these things as importance to your spiritual growth and your walk in faith. Number one is your love walk. That should get your number one Biggest focus of attention. As we told you before, read over 1 Corinthians 13, particularly 4, 5, and 6, those verses. Make sure you're walking in love. Because if you want to hinder your faith, don't walk in love. If you want to hinder your spiritual growth, don't walk in love. That thing by itself will influence your growth more than anything else. So what would be number two? How about faithfulness? How about godliness, revelation, knowledge? Which one should we put the number two by? How many think that God, that faithfulness, faithfulness is important to God? How many would believe that faithfulness is important to God? And we can maybe even put a number two by that. Yeah, I would think that too, except for one thing. One thing. How faithful were the disciples? 
Now, don't get on the disciples' case just yet. Because I'm talking about them in a, in, a, in a positive way. How many meetings did they show up for for Jesus? As far as we know, all of them. How many teachings were they there when Jesus taught? How many people did they catch? Whenever Jesus was doing a miracle, who was there? Whenever Jesus went into prayer, who was there? Every time we see Jesus, we see the disciples. In fact, the only times we can find that there was any separation between them is when he forced it. You will get in the boat and you will go to the other side. Now! (laughs) And they were reluctant. But they did it. Otherwise, we see them by his side all the time. Now, there were some things they didn't do as well as they should. But they are always there. Now, think back over the Gospels. You've all read them. How many times can you remember Jesus turning to the disciples and saying, Guys, I really appreciate you guys being here all the time. I mean, setting up the chairs, cleaning up afterwards, praying for the meeting, catching the people. I mean, you guys are just always here. And I appreciate How many, do you remember that scripture? Huh. You mean Jesus never pointed it out? That they were faithful? They were there all the time? What is interesting to note is what Jesus does point out. There is one thing in particular in this list that Jesus made it a point to point out when it happened. Revelation. There, oh God. Some of you probably did too. Revelation. When he said to them, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, the Christ, the son of living God. He said to them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And from that point on, he began to teach them differently. That's not the only time. Remember when he said to them, beware of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And he said, it's because we didn't take bread. And he looked at them and, and is shocked because they didn't get the understanding of this thing. What? That's what's revealed to you? What? That's what you get out of what I said? So he is amazed that they got the one revelation about who he was and he's mad that they didn't get the other one. And we can go through and you can find other times too that a revelation was important. It would seem to me that out of this list of the things that got Jesus' attention, it is revelation. Revelation, when they got it, changed the way Jesus taught them. Changed the way Jesus dealt with them. Revelation. And yet I will bet you that most Christians would put more emphasis on faithfulness, on godliness, and on knowledge. How much time do we spend trying to learn the Word of God? I need to get more of the knowledge of God. I need to get more of that in. And yet, the emphasis in the word is revelation. I would say the number two thing you could put on your list. You could put a little number two right next to revelation. Number two, right under love, is revelation. We need to have our walk go in such a way that revelation from God to us becomes a common thing. If Jesus said, I only say what the Father tells me to say and only do what I see the Father do, what is he walking in? 
Revelation. We need to walk more in Revelation. Walk in love. Walk in Revelation. Now, of these five, and again, I'm just taking this, these five that are right here. I put number three after the word faithfulness. Because you see, if you're faithful to do what God has revealed to you and faithful to walk in love, you're going to find out the rest of it falls in line. I put as number four, godliness. Because we need to become more like God. Who does, when Jesus is teaching on faith, he says, have the faith of, have the faith of God. In other words, become more godlike in the area of faith, in the area of love. Who do you want to become more like? I want to love more like God in the area of forgiveness. Who do you want to become more, more like? I want to become more like God in the area of trust. Who do you want to become more like? God is our example. He's what we need to do. So when I say godliness, I don't mean some kind of holiness, some kind of halo that follows you around everywhere. We're talking about becoming godlike in every aspect that you can. I put the knowledge of God down below that. Because it is more important that you walk in revelation knowledge than you gain more knowledge. General knowledge. It is more important that you walk in revelation. Now, where do you see yourself seeking the most of those things in that list up till now? Now, I'm sure today is all going to change. <laughs> but up till now, what have you spent your time in? Can you say that you have spent a considerable amount of time in the area of revelation for God to reveal things to you? Or are you spending more of your time Praying to God, worshiping God, learning about God, serving God. Those are all good things to do. But folks, we've got to spend more time getting revelation from God. We've got to operate in what God is telling us now. What has God said for you? Now, I learned this lesson a long time ago and still to this day. People still ask me, why do you get up so much earlier on a, on a Sunday morning? Because I expect to hear from God, to get revelation, before I ever show up here. I never write a, a bit of the outline you have in your hand until after several hours of prayer. And I expect God to reveal things. God, what is it? I don't want, to, I don't want some super duper knowledge but what are you revealing to me to say here this morning? Because that's what I need. I need the revelation from God on it. I need it every time I get here. I need it every Wednesday. And I need it all through the week. I need revelation. Father God, how am I supposed to handle What am I supposed to do over here? What, I'm, I need to get revelation. I need to become dependent on that revelation. Are you dependent on revelation from God? Do you expect that God will speak to you? The only thing that we have that Jesus pointed out about his disciples was when they were not in faith and when they were or were not in revelation. How many times does he say, where's your faith? Where's your faith? He expected it to be there. But outside of that, 
It's revelation. My father's revealed that to you. And it changed their life. The things that the father will speak to you in seconds will change your life completely. And when God speaks that word to you, you are no longer operating in the area of presumption. You are operating in the area of faith. When I share those stories, like I did, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, I sh- about the college that I went to, about the jobs that I took, and how I learned things from God. I always try and make sure, and I hope I did it two weeks ago, <laughs> That if you do what I did, you're going to be operating in the area of presumption. I believe I even said that. Pretty sure I even said that. If you do what I did, because I did it, you will operate in the area of presumption. I did it because it was revealed to me to do it. Because God was teaching me some things about hearing his voice. And it was imperative that I listen. I don't tell people to just apply to one college like I did. I don't tell people to apply to one job like I did. I don't tell people to do that because it was a word that was spoken to me. If you do it, you operate in the area of presumption. If God speaks it to you, then you're not. You've got to be careful. Don't operate in the area of presumption. God can't work with that. God can work with faith. I wrote this down in mine. It's not in yours. But no matter where you are in your understanding of faith, presumption is a ditch you want to stay out of. It's the one the enemy wants to constantly try and pull you in. And just like how many people have ever gone bowling? Anybody never gone bowling in their life? Anybody here has never gone bowling? Never watched bowling? You know that if you roll that ball on down the field, how many people have experienced a gutter ball? (laughs) You can't bowl without experiencing a gutter ball. It's a ditch on the left, it's a ditch on the right. And if you don't put that ball down that aisle perfectly right, it's going to fall into the ditch on the left, it's going to fall into the ditch on the right. It's going to go one way or the other. And you see, this is the thing about your life. The devil knows I got a ditch over here and I got a ditch over here. And I, am, I don't care which one you fall in. I just want you to fall in one. And so he is constantly pulling on us to get us to leave the area of faith and get into the area of presumption. But the thing is, folks, it still feels like we're in faith. Because I'm still believing. I'm still confessing. I'm still hoping. But presumption is not faith. God doesn't see it as faith. And God can't answer it. Don't presume. If you need something from God, don't assume you know what the Word of God has to say. Go back to it. Read it again. Check it out. Did God really say this? I'm going to ask. I'm going to find out. I'm going to see what his word says. And you meditate on that. And you meditate on that. And you meditate on that. Why? Because I want revelation. I want revelation on it. Brother Hagin shared that story when he was down the, on the bed learning about faith. 
and he saw Mark 11, 22, 23, 24. And he says, but I have faith. I know I have faith. And the, what was revealed to him was, you have faith as far as you know. Ooh, that's a deep statement. See, that was revelation. He was able to take that revelation and take his faith up to another level. And eventually, he got off a deathbed that he was not supposed to and lived to, a, lived to his 80s. Supposed to be dead by 16, lived to his 80s. And died healthy. Don't operate in area of presumption. It's where the enemy wants you. Because in the gutter, no pins fall down. No matter how fast that ball goes in the gutter, no pins fall down. In order to have a pin fall down, you've got to be in the field of play. Don't get in the area of presumption. Oh, folks, it's going to going to hinder you. It's going to hold you back. Would you all stand up with me? Father God, I thank you that revelation knowledge is available to us. Not just what is written in your word, but Father, you want us to meditate on what is written in your word and to hear from the Spirit of God speaking to our spirit. Revelation knowledge. Understanding things with our mind we cannot understand. You even tell us in the Word that with our own mind we can't comprehend the things of God. But when you speak these things to us in an instant we have understanding because we didn't figure it out. It was revealed. This week, Father, we're going to focus on walking in Revelation. Walking in the things of God. Having a focus on our love walk, but also having a focus on the things that are revealed that we can grow. Where we are in our life, Father, in order for us to go on from it, there's a revelation knowledge that we need, just as it was with the disciples. And until we get hold of that revelation, until we spend time, until we focus on receiving that revelation knowledge, we can't make the next turn. We can't make the next advance. We can't go to the next level. We need that revelation. It's so neat when the light turns on and we see and we understand things that we didn't understand just a few seconds ago. I thank you, Father, that you are prepared to speak to each one of us. Each one of us, whether we know it or not, we are at a crossroad. A crossroad that can only be crossed by a certain revelation. A certain thing that is waiting for us. Daniel came upon that as he was studying your word praying and meditating, all of a sudden, something that was in the Word that he had read before became light to him. And he said, Oh, I see this now. Now what happens to your people? And an angel was dispatched to him right away to give him revelation knowledge on the end times. It was such a great revelation that the enemy fought against it arriving and delayed it for three weeks. 
What is it in our life that is just out of our reach because we haven't received the revelation needed? We need to give attention to it. We need to have time to hear, time to listen, time to seek after you because we expect you to speak to us. I thank you that you do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, folks, I don't have to pray that God work on you in a special way this week, that he would speak revelation knowledge to you because of the, God, the God that we serve is always willing to speak revelation to us. He's always willing. We've got to be ready. I've told you this before, but you will be tested. You will be tested in the area of revelation. If you commit yourself to hearing revelation knowledge, I guarantee you, write this down, I guarantee you, the first one, if not the first, at least the second, will come at a most inoperable time. It will come at a time when you do not seem to have the will, the desire, or the ability to pay attention to it. And it's done for a purpose. Is the revelation of God more important to you than these things? Is it more important to you than sleep? Is it more important to you than eating? Is it more important to you than being out with your friends? Is there something in your life that is more important than hearing revelation from God? Early on, folks, you're going to find a whole lot of things that are more important. Eventually, though, even though we're thick, we do get the understanding. And see, I've learned this before. 30 seconds of revelation from God has saved me Months of study, months of searching, months of seeking. 30 seconds. It got to, to the point that I know that I cannot afford not to listen. I'm sure that there's still some things that can come up in my life that will try and be more important. I hope I'm better at keeping them at bay. But I just want you to know, revelation is going to come. If you like to sleep, guarantee it, 3 a.m. in the morning, you're going to wake up and all of a sudden you're going to get revelation. And you're going to be tempted to say this, that is so good. Oh, thank you, Father. Remind me again, I'm going to write that down in the morning. You will forget it. And uh, I've done it. (laughs) I've done it. You only need one, maybe two, depends how thick we are, of those times happening, and you not be able to get that revelation back. I know it was there. I know it was there. But I can't figure it out. I don't know what it was. But I know it was so important. 
It was going to change my life. It was going to change what I was doing here. Ah, oh, I can't believe I didn't write that down. That will stick with you. And when it comes to time at 3 a.m. in the morning, you're ready. You're going to have pad, paper. You're going to have your phone with a notebook thing ready to type. You're going to be ready to write down whatever it is he gave you. Now understand this. I learned this too early on. When I got revelation from God, I seldom fully understood it. Very seldom did I fully understand it. There are sometimes he spoke something to me and I knew it was true. Knew down in my spirit it was true. Knew it. But I didn't understand it. So what I did was I wrote it down exactly the way I heard it. Exactly the way I heard it. I didn't change anything. I didn't try because some temptation will be there to change it to make it make more sense to you. Don't change it. Write it down exactly as you got it. And it will make sense to you. Because once you write it down, you got it. I got this now. I have it written down. I got it. And then you just go on and meditate on that. All right, what is, what was he saying? How does this fit into what I'm doing? You know that one revelation that he gave Brother Hagin? You believe as far as you know. How many know you can meditate on those few words and get some more stuff? Because God is the master at giving you six, seven, eight words and keeping your study time busy for weeks. He's good at it. So make sure you do this. Give attention to his words. Incline your ear to his sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life. <laughs> they are life to all who hear them. Take that verse, put it in your refrigerator. Keep it in front of you. Make sure. Now this week, I fully expect God to be saying some things to you. Here's a, I need to give you this third bit of advice. Do not expect anyone else to get excited about your revelation. Don't expect it. Because what's going to happen is you got the revelation and it excited you because it's revelation. It revealed something. You communicate that to someone else, they're hearing it without the revelation. Don't expect them to get excited. I'm not saying you can't share it. I'm just saying if you do, don't expect them to get excited. You got the revelation. It's your word. Hearing the words without the revelation, without your eyes opening up, it, uh, it can affect you. Nah, stay with it. So I'm fully expecting this week for you to hear some stuff. I want to hear some praise reports on it. Don't let us, now you don't have to tell me what the word was. You don't have to write out the praise report. God told me, I don't want, you don't have to do that. Understand, not everybody's going to get excited about your revelation. It's yours. Some may say, well, I knew that. You, you didn't know that? You don't, hear, don't want to hear that. <laughs> it's revelation for you. Your eyes are open. That's good. Write down some praise reports. Put that there. And just do something like this. At 3 a.m., God spoke to me and I was ready. 
<laughs> That's a good praise report right there. I was mowing the lawn and God spoke to me. I had to turn the doggone thing off. <laughs> Get in the house, reciting the thing that he said to me until I wrote it down and got it. But I got it. That's a praise report. You don't need to know all the ins and outs about it, but I want to hear that God's speaking to you. Because next to the love walk, I really can't find anything that influences your life as much as revelation. Make sure you get it. All right. What we got over here? Got a couple of praise reports. Susan says, praise God, the pain level has gone way down. Ah, oh, I got it. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't it? Thank you for that interpretation. <laughs> and so, before I traveled last week, I got... I got entered into a raffle to win some prizes. Can't remember what the prizes all were at my doctor's office. On my return, I was greeted by wonderful news at the doctor's office. I won the $25 gift card. Thank you, Lord, for providing gas money for the week. There you go. I remember the days I could get by on $25 worth of gas. <laughs> Don't buy a truck, that's all I'm saying. Huh. Candy, uh, prayer for Bobby. He has a headache. He's had this for a whole week, she was, she was saying before. Um, and also, also for us. Oh, acid, oh, acid reflux. Gotcha. All right. Let's all stand up here as we go. Folks that are around, Candy, lay your hands on her. Glory to God. Father God, we just thank you for the healing power of God. In the name of Jesus, we just speak to this body right now. And this acid reflux condition, we rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Healing belongs to this body, not sickness, not disease, and not this acid reflux. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Father, we just thank you that whatever it is that's causing these headaches, uh, this headache to go on such a long time with Bobby, that, Father, that cause you will reveal down in their spirit, speak to them about what it is they need to do, and, Father, they'll obey it, and their faith will be built up for what the, what the enemy desired for destruction. You can turn around for good. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Father, as we go out this week, I thank you ahead of time for the revelation, for the words that you are speaking to us, the things that we're ready to hear, and how it will change our life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.